Investors Chronicle. Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Markets show. The date is Thursday, the 22nd of February, and the mood is upbeat. The quote-unquote most important stock on earth, NVIDIA, beat earnings forecasts again overnight. And to add to the positivity, European and Japanese shares are hitting all-time highs this morning. The latter finally doing so 34 years after the previous peak. And there's been good results from some domestic favourites too. It's been a busy week for earnings in general, so we'll begin the show by considering UK banks, from Barclays' big overhaul to HSBC's impairment woes. Then it's our cover story this week, which looks at other ways to capitalise on the growth of the data centres from which NVIDIA is making so much money. And finally, we look at a UK share that's delivered its own 200% plus return over the past year. That's Rolls-Royce, which put out full-year figures of its own this morning. Joining me to discuss all of this are over the line, Julian Hoffman. Hello, Dan. Hi, Julian. And in the studio, Val Cipriani. Hi, Dan. Hi, Val. And Mike Fahey. Hi. Hi, Mike. Banks, we will begin with them. Slightly underwhelming sector, to say the least, in recent years, despite all the the uh, excitement we've had in recent days from various shares. Nonetheless, there has been quite a bit of news flow over the past week, Julian, from uh, various full-year figures. Let's begin with Barclays because it's been a bank in search of a strategy for a while now. It has come up with one. What did you make of it? What is that strategy? What's it saying it's going to do? Yeah, thanks, Dan. Well, it's been an exciting uh, banking results season, which I hope isn't a contradiction in terms. Barclays itself enjoyed one of its best share price days in possibly decades, uh, looking back over the figures. And the reason for that, as you uh, outlined, is that the chief executive, um, Venkat, um, or CS Venkat, has put a, a strategy on the table to try and overhaul its dysfunctional, not very well performing, um, and often mutually uh, exclusive divisions, which uh, um, includes investment banking across the world, plus the Woolwich. So, I mean, it's a very broad model of banking that they have. And uh, the criticism for many years has been that uh, the investment bank is just too big in um in the context of Barclays as a whole, and that it soaks up too much capital and doesn't deliver anywhere near the profit uh, that it should. Uh, and uh, the, the the bank's solution to this is to restructure its corporate its corporate entity so that uh, the UK, in effect, uh, becomes a much larger part of the total Barclays um, business model. And they're doing this effectively by reducing the amount of risk capital that the uh, investment bank is t- takes up, which at the moment is 58% of its risk-weighted capital, and they're reducing that to 50. And that means that about 30 billion of capital can go towards supporting the UK corporate, retail, and wealth management divisions which are sort of going to be split off and in effect given a capital boost in order to enable them to grow so i mean the market initially you know the reception of this of this was very good partly because somebody articulated any kind of strategy i think um it's been a a sort of an ongoing joke with buckley's that they 
tended not to, to you know to talk about the elephant in the room which uh, was was this rather oversized investment bank that uh, effectively was built up after the 2008 crisis and uh, that now seems to be that they are serious about putting the money where the success is in that business which is definitely uh, the UK side uh, of Barclays, which is ironically a much more simple and you might say boring bit of uh, banking, but um, it's producing returns on tangible equity of 19%. Whereas if you take Barclays as a whole, the group is only producing 10% return on tangible equity. So it, it shows you uh, from those numbers that the investment bank uh, and the international division, which are sort of mixed in together, that are dragging down the overall performance of the group, despite taking up well over fifty percent of its of its capital in terms of risk of the risk it has to back. So yes, resolving that situation is proving popular for the shares. Are they rather lost in all that? Was the fact that they actually missed uh, their profit forecast for the year? So um, it wasn't exactly all uh, an, an ace for Buckley's. But um, the question will be whether they actually deliver on what they've said. Uh, you know, some mm. of the commentary afterwards was, well, we've heard bits of this before in, in various guises, but they've never pulled through it, actually done it. Um, with the, the suspicion always that, uh, you know, whatever is announced becomes subject to the infighting within the divisions of the bank, where the investment bank is obviously has a very disproportionate presence on its board and its... Um, uh, and its overall level of middle management. So you, you never quite, you're never quite sure how they will pull through with that. But if they are serious about moving the capital, at least, that does suggest that the UK bank side of the bank is going to benefit, and and that will be where they grow their future profits. I think. Yeah, there is also there's some, you know, they're they're shrinking that investment bank in terms of uh, headcount. Uh, also, though, they are looking, I think, aren't they, to to the US, the cards business growing that, which, you know, is a is a potentially quite a competitive market. Well, it is quite a competitive market. Uh, but the other important thing we should say, shouldn't we, is investors are being paid to wait to an extent. You know, they're, they're hoping to return or intending to return 10 billion over the next three years. Well, we can maybe talk about total returns for banks in general in a moment. But, it, you know, it's, a, it's not nothing in the meantime while they try and uh, work out this transition. Yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely uh, when you when you average it out, it's like a 10 percent increase on what they've been doing so far. So you're, mm. you're basically getting a an increment uh, on top of it for, to, for the next three years. That's a, as you say, it's a pay to wait scenario um, to see if they actually can reorganize the bank uh, in the way that they've said they will. So yes, they, they, that that was a very positive uh, share price move for them. The, the one that wasn't so positive, uh, I guess we could move on to HSBC at this point. They kind of share, I mean, I, I like to think of them as the kind of twins in a funny way, because they do share the complexity of, of major divisions in lots of different countries. Um, but they're going in very rapidly different directions. I think it's fair to say, um, based on the results we saw this week. And um, HSBC's main problem, uh, as you alluded to, is that it doesn't seem to be able to accurately um, forecast its impairments. So Every time they say they expect an impairment, uh, at the moment you're having to add a billion or two billion to it, and that's what the market hated about the results. Uh, is particularly they, they they were getting out of this Chinese commerce business, commerce bank business, and that cost them a ton of money. And they even managed to lose money on the selling the French business, which only a couple of years ago was forecast to be to generate quite a substantial profit. So there's clearly something not right in the 
in the operation side of the business. But uh, the thing that is lurking in the when you see the long form results and you you look at the number of loans uh, in the Chinese property book that are looking at, that are rated at fifty percent more chance of um, default or impairment, that number is increasing all the time. Every time I look at it. And, and you combine that with the bank, uh, you know, constantly saying that they've got confidence in the Chinese economy. I think I, t- I totted it up at like 17 different mentions in the uh, in the statement that they had confidence in China's medium-term prospects. But I think it's increasingly clear that nobody else does. And uh, consequently, they sent the shares down. The, the shares had their worst single-day performance since 2008, which is really saying something. I mean, if it's as bad as it was back then, then... It tells you it tells you what people uh, what people are really feeling about it, um, and it may be an overreaction. Of course, I mean things can get better, but um, it, it is the it's the extent of their exposure that and the extent of what they'll have to impair that that nobody can really figure out because the situation is so dynamic and it's changing all the time, and at the moment it's changing for the worst. Yeah, there's two things with China, isn't there? There's the Bank of Communications stake write down of the value. Uh, but also, as you say, the exposure in general to the Chinese economy, to Chinese real estate. And that's probably where there's more uncertainty in future. You know, in amongst all these impairments, the shares sinking probably based partly on the fact that no one really knows how many more there will be to come as well. Uh, yeah, it's 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 it definitely, it feels like that 2008 situation that nobody knows what the what's lurking on the balance sheet that will cause it a problem. And they can't seem to quantify it themselves, which is what is spooking the market. They seem to like, they, they put credit power charges, like they've got an expected credit charge of over three point over 3.4 billion, but um, that that has already changed from this time last year and it's changed counterintuitively downwards. So, <clears throat> you know, they, it, 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 you know, investors aren't really sure um, whether that reflects the reality of the situation, or is, or they are trying to say, well, in the medium term, we we expect the the, the economy will improve in certain areas, and so we won't have to put such a, a higher charge in. But uh, yes, it's it it undermines everyone's confidence in it. I think that's the main point. Yeah, you would hope it's not a 2008 type situation in terms of the existential crises. And I suppose characterizing the, the Chinese property market has been much more of a, a slow burn, albeit the flames are jumping higher, uh, higher and <laughs> it's higher. It's a slow burning thing, yeah. I think would be a more, Indeed. Uh, a more uh, accurate uh, description. But they, you know, they, are, they are returning money. So they, they did do another 3 billion buyback in that. They've raised the, the dividend yet again. They are, they have cash. I mean, I think I think that's the, the point. I mean, I, I wasn't trying to, to, to suggest they were going to go bust, but um, they have cash from one-off sources. I think that's the other thing that people seem to to latched on that uh, they can pay out these 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 one-off payments to shareholders, but that is being funded by yesterday's sales. So whether that continues on the basis that uh, some of the underlying divisions are not doing very well is um, is a moot point. And also all the gains they've been booking, uh, you know, a lot of it is counting gain. At least a 30% of everything they've declared uh, last year was all in accounting gains. So um, that isn't really cash through the door. On the subject of payouts, we should turn to NatWest because they also had figures a few days ago now. The income available there is the main attraction. You know, it's a pretty high dividend yield now, perhaps in the absence of other attractions for the bank. But how, how did the results look in general? Uh, well, the results themselves were fine. I mean, um, they, they continue to pay out quite a lot of their capital. So they did another, again, another share buyback of about $2 billion. And so far in the last 12 months, 
they've paid out 40p per share in term in returns when you consider that you're already paying uh what are they now 230 for the shares that's a pretty hefty return that uh, investors have been earning on the back of those the question i guess is what for them is how the new management performs um as we know last year they had to replace their chief executive in a hurry uh because of a, a farage related related incident so yeah, the new guy's just got his feet on the table. So uh, it's really aggressive how he he now articulates what the bank is about. But the results, in terms of the the overall banking season, the results for NatWest were the most straightforward and the most easy to understand for investors because they're now a very UK focused bank and um, they do simple things like give people mortgages, um, which is uncontroversial in the in the greater scheme of things, I think at the moment. And they seem to be out of this deposit churn cycle. So, you know, they got well written down before Christmas because uh, there were some predictions on their margins that uh, their net interest margin would be falling. Uh, in the event, it came in uh, something like 0 0.34. Um, so it's it's just about in line with everyone else. So I don't think there was, I think that was a bit of a panic that, um, that uh, people latched onto that. And the shares, if you look at them, are now starting to recover quite well from from the lows they reached in uh, in October. Yes, yeah, so I, th I think NatWest, in 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 the total of all the banks we've seen, is probably the most stable in terms of its income and its and its core market. But that core market effectively is the UK economy. I mean, there's no there's no two ways about it at the moment. If we take a step back for a minute, uh, we'll skip over Lloyd's because uh, we are running short in this segment. We did discuss them a bit last week, uh, that motor finance provision. If we take a step back and look at the banks in sum, since 2008, there has been this talk of uh, really, you know, they're never getting back to the return on equity we saw pre-financial crisis, despite all the efforts we're still seeing on that front. People should consider them to be more like utilities. Is there an argument that that is actually the case now because of the total returns we're seeing in the case of NatWest and you know, Barclays plans, those total returns are starting to increase. Those payouts are looking relatively attractive, whereas they're still, they're still uh, clearly trying to strive to prove they can you know, make good returns on equity and, and recapture some of their former glories. But in reality, maybe it is that dividend, that buyback aspect, which is going to be utility-like yeah. for them. They're going to be those kind of you can't really say stable, but you can certainly say uh, shares giving a decent payout over the years ahead. Well, exactly. I mean, I, you're absolutely right. I mean, the only way a bank grows its share price is by rapidly expanding its balance sheet. And there's no way that uh, the regulators in their current mood, who are, are incredibly interventionist um, over the last uh, six to 12 months, would ever allow that to happen in a significant way. So, I mean, there's no way, uh, you know, NatWest is going to merge with um, Virgin Money or anything like that. Um, so there, that's where the, the value is created in that balance sheet expansion. And that the, that can only expand at the rate that the economy grows and at the rate that they can give out loans. And, uh, you know, it's, a, it's like four or five percent at most at the moment. So that's how you predict that the earnings will come through. You can predict the earnings like that, but um, that sort of means that uh, the cash they generate is their only attraction because you know the underlying expansion just isn't available as an option for for a large bank now. As you know, unlike it was in the early two thousands, where you know the regulators waved through very large uh, 
bank takeovers in the belief that you know bigger bigger was better and uh, we all know where that landed us well quite time to move on to something ostensibly a bit more flashy though even though they're probably increasingly going to be thought of as utilities as well that's data centers Overnight, as we said, NVIDIA reported another set of forecast-beating results driven by its data center division, where sales were up 400% year-on-year. That speaks to the growth of this sector and AI's need for huge computing power. Uh, But Val, you wrote the cover feature this week. Can you tell us a bit more about the context for uh, this data center story? So where data creation has been up a lot in the past few years and is forecast to go up a lot more, uh, so something like ninefold between 2017 and 2027. Uh, And I mean, the basic trend is pretty pretty intuitive. Like 10 or 15 years ago, we were spending less time on the internet. We took pictures on our phones that uh, were lower quality and took up less memory and, and all of that. And so the trend has been going for a while, but the advent of artificial intelligence promises to accelerate it quite drastically just because AI models need just a lot of data to be trained and then to to be used. And so if we need to create and manage and store uh, this huge amount of data, uh, we just need more more data center to do it. So that is kind of like the the basis of of the trend. And a data center is basically, well, it's basically a warehouse with a lot of computers inside. And that's where the servers of the internet companies are. And so those computers basically make all the things that we do online possible from you know, sending like a WhatsApp message or browsing Google or, or whatever else you may think of. And so this is this is kind of like the basic trend. And it's not just the fact that we need more data centers as a society, but it's also the fact that it's not uh, entirely easy to kind of like build new ones. And so there is a bit of an imbalance between the supply and the demand. That's because uh, a data center consumes a lot of energy as people may know. Uh, It also uses up a lot of water because uh, uh, computers heat up quite a lot and then they need cooling systems. And then it needs high-speed fiber connection uh, and a lot of other technical stuff. So unlike, say, you know, like a retail warehouse, you cannot just go and take the first piece of land you find and build a data center. And because of all like these issues, governments have become a bit more reluctant to grant permissions to build new ones. So, for example, there was there is an issue in Ireland in particular, which is a place that has really a lot of data centers compared to the size of the country. And in 2022, data centers made up about 18 percent of Ireland electricity consumption. And they think this could go up to 30 percent by 2030. So basically, the grid has said, well, this this does not work and they stopped providing new connections for data centers in Dublin probably at least until 2028. So basically this is this all these things are, are why the trend is quite is quite strong and where the feature originally came from. Uh, just the fact that we need a lot of new ones. Uh, the existing ones will likely have a significant amount of pricing power for this reason uh, because the, the supply is is quite constrained basically. When I was speaking about NVIDIA's growth rate, we should clarify that's a data center division which is making all this money. But what it does, obviously, is sell chips to the big tech companies who occupy the data center space. But the opportunity we're speaking about in this case, or the potential opportunity, uh, is more about those who operate the centers rather than those who use them, even though 
the lines are sometimes a bit blurred. Yeah, exactly. So uh, basically, as, an, as a type of investment, it sits somewhere between uh, real estate and infrastructure. And they are the companies that run the data centers. So they might uh, own the buildings and then they rent out the space, the equipment and the services to the internet companies. So even, say, the likes of Amazon, if, if we're thinking about the big ones. And those leases are the way they make money. So generally speaking, and there are different types of data centers, as you say, the lines are a bit blurred, but generally speaking, they have contracted rents for a few years, maybe seven or so, and there are annual increases built in that sometimes can be inflation-linked, and it is basically a stable sort of income, and then there is potential for growth on top of that. There is a conflict, though, as you've alluded to, a potential conflict in that the rental growth opportunity looks strong because, in part because supply is so constrained. But also that constraint of supply means if you're an operator, clearly these businesses don't stand still. They want to bring on new centres themselves and investor expectations might be that they can do that. So when they face headwinds regarding, be it government policy, cracking down on data centres or or be it some of the environmental challenges, that can be a headwind for the operators as well. So in some ways, it's a balance between the attractiveness of rental growth and the possibility that getting new data centers online is much harder than it was in the past. Yeah, it's yeah, it's certainly not without risks because basically a lot of the growth prospects come from the fact that we will need new capacity for data centers. Building more, as we said, is not is not entirely straightforward. So first of all, there is the kind of like uh, regulatory issues that I've alluded to. For example, talking about Ireland, there are other countries that have introduced restrictions as well. And what happened in Ireland, for example, resulted in project delays and cancellations, which obviously is not is not good for for the developers. And then the kind of like like second side of the equation is that cost of capital is obviously up. So the rental growth needs to make up for that. And like with basically any developments in other areas of, of real estate as well, they need to work harder than they used to to, to make money to, to be profitable. And so there are risks there. And then there's also a sort of final side point, which is we mentioned that uh, artificial intelligence is a big opportunity for for the data center operators. And I mean, it definitely is. But uh, it's also true that AI applications are a bit different in the types of data centers that they require. They they produce more heat. They they require very intensive infrastructure. So the operators will also likely need to adapt their facilities to, to serve this new trend. Whatever regulators and governments say, there's no doubt that governments at the same time do also want this business and they need it to meet our data needs. So something will have to give probably at some point. Uh, but what are the, the opportunities perhaps with uh, big tech clearly flinging a lot of money in this area? In some cases, they are building their own centers, but there are also examples of them collaborating more with operators to try and get the kind of services they want. Uh, and are there also areas where these data center operators are working with firms or a different type of company from the big tech giants? Yeah, there's a, there's a few sides to this because on one hand, obviously, the big tech companies, they, they do have and run their own data centers. They are building new ones. And I think at the beginning of the year, Google announced a $1 billion investment for a new data center in Hertfordshire. Uh, so clearly, that's something that's happening um, and potentially a headwind for, for some of the, the operators. But it's not it's not quite as easy as that because even the, the tech companies that sort of had to uh, deal with the supply constraints we we mentioned before, especially because data centers tend to like 
need to be built uh, to a degree near the big cities. And this is partly because, like, to, to reduce latency, basically. So if you need to run, say, high-speed trading service that works in London, you will need it to be, like, you will need the corresponding data center to be quite near London, because otherwise you will just have too much delay in the, in the communication. I mean, it is pretty intuitive that even Amazon cannot just waltz into London and just build a data center super quickly. So the existing operators that run the existing data centers have some some negotiating power there. And I mean, the the sort of the whole landscape is, is quite complex. And for example, NVIDIA just uh, sort of announced a partnership with one of the big uh, data center operators in, in the US. It's a, um, a REITs called Equinix. Uh, and they're just gonna kind of like work together to provide the processors that NVIDIA makes to kind of like third parties. So there are definitely opportunities for um, for the data center operators in, in this space as well. And then the sort of other side of the equation is that uh, it's not just, you know, Amazon or Microsoft that, that need data centers. It's also a lot of like mid-sized and smaller businesses. And there's kind of like a whole category of data centers, which are called co-location data centers that just serve this market. I mean, there's there's potentially an argument that while these smaller players might take more time to kind of profit from, from artificial intelligence, it's also true that they have much less negotiating power than, say, Microsoft or Amazon. Uh, and so they might actually be more attractive for, for the operators in a way. Over the past year, clearly, we've had a bit of AI mania, a lot of uh, interest, to say the least, in the topic. At the same time, though, the data center sector does provide a, a classic example of a cautionary tale because while all this has been going on, the most high-profile way to play or access data centers in the UK has had a terrible time. That's the uh, Digital Nine Infrastructure Trust, which is now winding down. It's on a huge discount, uh, which does go to show it's not. there's no such thing as a, a you know one-way ticket, is there? The riches aren't going to immediately follow just because you're in an exciting sector. Nonetheless, we do talk in the piece about various other ways to play this trend, albeit they're all slightly different kinds of share or security. Yeah, basically, digital line was was possibly the, the easiest way to to play the trend for private investors in the UK. I mean, it's not necessarily a cautionary tale against the trend itself, uh, because mm. the data center business within digital line was going well, but the business also needed quite a bit of investment to be able to grow, and the uh, trust kind of like overstretched its balance sheet in order to provide a lot of different things. Uh, so carry out their growth strategy, support the various businesses and also pay dividends. And I mean, it became clear that they couldn't do that in a sort of high rate environment where it was quite difficult to raise money. So yeah, not necessarily against the trend itself, but it goes to show the impact that sort of higher interest rates have had on all these kind of investments within infrastructure and real estate, basically. And then in terms of other ways to, to play the trend, and we've got a few suggestions in the piece, but um, two of the of the kind of like big listed companies here are these two uh, REITs that are listed in the US. So that's Equinix and Digital Realty. And then there's a few other UK infrastructure trusts, such as Cordiant and Pantheon Infrastructure. These last two worth possibly pointing out that they do have a nice exposure to data centers, but you also get exposure to a lot of other types of uh, infrastructure assets. Only digital for Cordiant, so the likes of communication towers. And then Pantheon is, is just kind of like a broad-ranging sort of vehicle uh, with a lot of different type of assets. 
There are uh, other options mentioned in the piece as well. So if this has whetted your appetite, do pick up a copy of the magazine or look at the feature online. Our final section today, though, is going to be dedicated to Rolls-Royce, uh, which has full-year figures out this morning, so just a few hours ago as we record. Mike, you're in the middle still of uh, looking through those. I haven't quite got round to filing a piece yet, but I am almost there. What do they What do they strike you as? Clearly, the stock, as I said at the top, has done incredibly well over the past year. The turnaround story is well and truly in train. How do the figures look today? So the figures today look really impressive and better even than expected. The revenue is up about 20%, uh, operating profit up by almost a billion pounds to 1.6 billion. On a statutory basis, it's the first time it's made a, a pre-tax profit in about six years. It was going through a whole world of restructuring even before COVID hit. And I think that's worth mentioning because uh, when you look at why this performance has happened, there's definitely an element of an uplift in its end market, its biggest end market in civil aerospace feeding through because they took such, uh, they had to take such stringent action during COVID. They cut 9,000 jobs. They introduced a load of other uh, cost-cutting measures, which meant that once turnover picked up, and it was always naturally likely to, given a return to travel, then there were going to be uh, there was going to be a big drop through to the bottom line. But what um, the chief executive, Tufan Ergen Bilic, who joined last year, was keen to stress was that this was about more than just the operational leverage benefit. He said that this time last year, they lifted guidance from what they were on previously by 25%. And then at half year results, they lifted it again by a further 40%. And this is... The results have even beat those expectations. How we said they were pretty much double what they were working off plans on eighteen months ago. So yeah, the the guidance. What does that tell us today? Both in terms of the company's prospects for the year ahead, but also the underlying nature of the business. You know, the sectors it serves. Uh, engine flying hours. Uh, clearly, a closely watched metric in Rolls Royce's case. Yeah, and clearly, as as I said earlier, that that. Um, there was quite a big uplift last year with um, uh, travel, especially international travel, starting again from China. Mm. So over the course of the year, engine flying hours last year went from uh, 65% in 22 to 88%, which is a major uplift. But this year, they are, they've given guidance that uh, engine flying hours will be between 100 and 110% of 2019 levels. And... Uh, Ergen Bilic was asked about that by analysts on a call today and he said that yes some of this will again be due to the kind of natural uplift as traffic returns to levels as it was but that they'd also won more market share they've got more engines out there flying and um, they've also taken other actions which feed through into profit like when you look at where the revenue and profit growth has come from it is largely from the civil aerospace improvement, but um, they've increased prices right across the board and that's led to improvements in both the power systems division. He said the power systems division is at record levels. The operating margin there was up two percentage points to I think 10.5% roughly. And uh, the defence business has done really well as well. Obviously, defence has its own 
input in terms of stronger demand, but that hasn't in the past necessarily translated into better profits, and now it is. The big question for holders, clearly, with a share that's up 200% in a year, is whether the momentum can continue. And we were, oh, you were, you know, very early in terms of banging the drum, by which I mean, you know, ahead of this share price rise, very much saying there is value there. Then at the end of last year, we were saying maybe there's uh, room for a bit more caution now. Yeah. Uh, nonetheless, momentum has clearly continued. They're up 10% today, 20% year to date. How do you see the, the balance of things at the moment? Yeah, um, it's a tricky one, that, because you very kindly mentioned uh, we did Blooming the Ideas section in October 21, and at the time they were 145p, and now they're up at 364. Uh, and so you look and you think how... How much is priced in? How sustainable is this increase? And the company has increased guidance a couple of times, and it set medium-term targets last year for uh, for twenty twenty-eight, um, both in terms of the level of operating profit, free cash flow it will generate, and uh, margins. And some of those targets look like big stretches. So with return on capital, they were talking about a total return on capital of between 16 to 18%. And in 2022, it was less than 5%. So that's a big mm. gain to try and make up. But they were already halfway there. The return on capital last year was 11.3%. And um, there were represent well, in the commentary the company gave, they were talking about already maybe looking to increase the guidance that it gave in November when they set the medium-term targets. So on the game, they're currently priced, you look at price-earnings ratio, uh, after today's share price rise, around 27, 28 times, which looks quite chunky when compared with peers. It's sort of pointless comparing it to its five-year average because... It's not made any earnings over that period. And even on some of the other metrics, it's it's difficult, given its recent history, to, to refer back to that. Um, but that looks at a level where you may consider taking some of the gains. And I know James Norrington last week was talking about uh, when to sell shares, and he, I will make it clear that James didn't, advocate selling Rolls Royce shares. He was he was trying to be clear making that point this morning, wasn't he? Yeah, he, he did. Uh, but if you were somebody who invested back at the 150p level and you're looking at where they are now, then certainly you would not you would think that the level of gains made so far would not be easily replicated. Um, and I think there's a case for that. However, um, like I'm quoting a 28 times multiple and when you look at the current broker forecast that drops pretty quickly to 19 times in two years time and the likelihood is after today's performance you're going to see some pretty sizable broker upgrades so that comes down even further um it's the classic argument of whether you let your winners run or not mm. and I, I think in this case i would probably towards doing so depending on when you bought in if you bought in 150p then maybe trim what you've got and take some of the gains off the table but uh the indications are that i think this is this is further to run and there's one other potential catalyst just to finish to talk about which is yep. 
the potential return of the investment grade credit rating. Indeed, yeah. Which would itself, the company has said again today, I think, that that could then lead to the return of payouts when that happens. And there are signs that that could be close to happening. Yeah, so there is a note from Jeffries today uh, where it helpfully set out some of the targets that um, that Fitch has said the company would need to hit before it considered reinstating Rolls-Royce's investment grade rating. And there are a number of them. It's the level of cash profits, the gross debt, the level of uh, free cash flow margin, the amount of capex, the amount of cash flow it's generating in, in relation to its total debt and its cash profit margin. And on, on all of those metrics, it's already there. So it may not be too long before Fitch uh, considers an investment upgrade. And some of the other credit rating agencies have have been lifting their outlook in recent months. So I think that is a distinct possibility that you that you do soon get a lift in its credit rating back towards investment grade rating. And that, I think, would be another, another catalyst. Of course, if it's not being priced in ahead of time, of course. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you very much for that, Mike. We have come to the end of the show, unfortunately, but thank you also to Val and to Julian and to our producer, Maddie Apthorpe. And to you for listening. We'll see you next time on another Companies and Market Show. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.